So I'm a scientist. And I'm not, but I'm curious about science. She asks a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions. And it's always fun for me to explain complex science in understandable ways. So So we we made made a podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to our first listener feedback extravaganza. Bum, bum, bum. Why are you, that was what? kind of like a losing game show sound. That was like a 1950s mystery show that like something went awry. Yeah. Bum, bum, bum. Why are you being ominous? I, I don't know. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Better? Bum, 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 bum. Hooray. We make our own theme music around here. All right. All right, so what we're going to do is talk about all the awesome listener feedback and questions we've had for all of our episodes, and we were going to tag this on to other episodes, but we thought if you listen to them out of order, then it wouldn't make sense, and yada, yada. But listen, we've had people from all over contact us and talk to us about the show, like give us feedback or ideas or questions, and it's been a blast for us to have people texting us random and be like, oh, I listen to your episode and blah, blah, blah. So Yeah, so keep them coming. Keep them coming. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just a quick update on the listener profile. So we are very excited that we have had over 300 unique listeners and it has been heard in 13 countries. So thank you so much. I think I, I don't know 300 people and I definitely don't know 300 people living in 13 countries. So that means people we don't know have listened to this. At least a couple. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Let the world learn about science. Woo-hoo. Okay, so I guess we'll just start from the top. Let's do it. We had some questions slash comments about our buoyancy episode. All right. The ducks, the floating duck house episode. So my friend Lisa wrote from Italy. uh, She wanted to know why salt water boils faster than normal water. Is Ah. it have something to do with buoyancy? No. Oh, no. It is not related to buoyancy. Okay. It is related to another unique characteristic of water which is it's high specific heat. So specific heat is a very scientific term, which basically means that in order to increase the temperature of water, you need to add a lot of heat. So if you think about like metal, metal has a very low specific heat. So if you have steel you know, pan, it's going to heat up very quickly. If you put it in water, it's going to cool down very quickly. Water takes a really long time to heat up and cool down. Now, the specific heat of salt is a lot lower than the water. So if you add salt to the water, the overall specific heat goes down. You just bring down the average, basically? Well, and it has a little bit to do with how the water molecules are interacting with each other. When there's salt in there? Correct. It also increases the overall boiling temperature. Well, is that different from the specific heat? Yes. Specific heat is how quickly you heat up and cool down. The boiling temperature... So the boiling point is what the temperature is when it starts to boil. What even is boiling? Like, why does it do it? So boiling happens when gas vapors in the liquid. So they heat up to the point where they're now vapors, not liquid. So it's the transition point from liquid phase to gas phase. phase. Those are inside the liquid and they need to burst out the top. And it's pretty hard for them to burst out the top. So you get that boiling where the top of the water is kind of rolling so that it can allow some of those vapors to release. So would it... Okay, this is probably a dumb question, but here I go. No such thing. I, I like asking dumb questions. Wouldn't... 
It changed the chemical properties of the water if the boiling water is given off a lot of O, oxygen. Wait, hydrogen can turn into a gas too. Wait a minute. Okay. Okay, is this why... Wait, wait. Is this why your water level, after you boil water, it goes down because you're just letting off so much steam? Yes, but you're misinterpreting what's going on. Okay, explain it. You're not releasing hydrogen gas and oxygen gas separately. Mm -hmm. You are releasing water vapor molecules together correct all right so it's just given off all right so it has to it has to bubble up because the water vapor yeah comes all together and creates a big old bubble and then that no no the the pressure of the rising water vapor because it's lighter now because it's hot yeah but it comes together in the form of a bubble before it gets to the top well when it's real hot sure okay and then it goes and it explodes into the air. Right. Great. Okay. I'm going to have a new appreciation for water boiling now. My mom used to say something all the time when I was little. A watched pot never boils. But now I think that's probably not very scientific. Well, it'll eventually boil. It'll eventually boil, whether you're watching it or not. Correct. Yeah. Well, I was an impatient child, so I guess it makes sense that she said that to me. All right. Here's the next question about buoyancy. Why does salt lower a freezing point? Yeah. So this is very important for anyone icing roads right now because that's how you can uh, prevent slips and, you know, increase traction on roadways and sidewalks because the salt molecules get in between the water molecules in the mixture and prevent the water molecules from forming that really tight lattice network that we talked about. And that lattice network is what is required to turn it into ice oh okay well that seems pretty straightforward i have so many questions about using salt on roadways yeah because it seems bad for the environment yeah and that's why if you're driving through like wetlands or near certain like Like conservation areas they tell you it's a salt-free area which is why you have to drive a little bit more carefully because they can't use salt to help your traction they also use sand plants don't like salt right yeah, sand makes more sense, but we're now having a global sand shortage, right? I didn't realize that. Yeah, they're saying sand is, uh, is we're getting low on it hmm. globally, which is why the price of silicone is rising. Got it. We should verify that before publishing it. But if, it, if you're listening to this and I'm saying these words, then we have verified it. All right. All right, great. Next episode, muscles. Muscles. My cousin Pat from Spokane just completed massage therapy school. All right. And he said I could let everyone know that in order to get a muscle to relax, you can press on it really hard with your thumb for several seconds until it relaxes. And the reason it does that is scientific because uh, aerobic muscles, the muscles that contain oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. Aerobic. uh, They need obviously oxygen to function. And so if they've got a big knot in them, if you press on that knot, you're cutting off an oxygen supply and the muscle has to relax. That's cool, right? Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, so that's very helpful. So next time you're giving a massage or trying to get a massage, just like push on it really hard for a while, and then it has to has to relax. So here's what if my... it hurts when you're doing that? If it hurts, yeah. well, don't hurt somebody. Okay. Don't hurt them. Just <laughs> just just firmly press into the knot. Got it. And see what happens. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. We're... Pressing on my knots tends to hurt. So well. Uh, do you do it to the point of pain or no, I, I now think, I have questions. No, I know <laughs> you're asking me. I don't know. 
Pat, help us out here, man. All right. Uh, tell us what's up with that. And uh, I don't know. We're not massage therapists, yeah. just like we're not doctors. But do you endure the pain a little bit to get rid of the knots, yeah. or do you just not do it to the point of pain? Yeah, I would say press firmly but gently. But the point is not to hurt someone; it's to let the muscle relax. But here's my question: Why do muscles get knots in the first place? Yeah, what okay. are they doing? I can answer this one. Great. So knots are just localized areas of tension. Yeah. So it's not to the full muscle kind of scale that a cramp would be, but it's those you know, muscle fibers within a muscle cell kind of getting a little bit tensed up and, and pulled together. So you get that kind of ball, like not feel. Yeah. And sometimes they hurt. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. Muscle, yeah. Sometimes they, yeah, they just, they just get tense in there, yeah. increased tension, mm-hmm. but they won't let go. They're right. just, okay. And that's apparently what help, you know, pressing and, you know, getting rid of that oxygen will do for you. Yeah. According to Pat. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pat. I recently saw a picture of a guy's calf muscle who just who completed like an ultra marathon bicycling race kind of a thing, like a world Tour de France champion or something. His calf muscle looked like a gnarled old tree trunk. It was so sinewy and weird looking. I mean, I'm not huh. trying to be mean, but it's like, it was like amazing. You know, my muscles have certainly never looked like that, but it's amazing that your muscles can deplete to that degree that they no longer resemble a human muscle anymore. Wish I had seen this picture. Well, we'll have Can't to, really comment on it. I would put it, it on Instagram, but it's kind of gross looking. It's gross. Yeah. Oh. Okay, well, moving right along. Uh, Pat also wanted to let us know about speed skaters. And actually, Lisa from Italy also wrote in this comment. So it must be true, I guess, if it's uh, being said Double by verified. multiple people. Yeah. On speed skaters, uh, we were like, how do they not fall over? And get lopsided. Yeah. But apparently they they train specifically in both directions. They okay. they train as if they are going to race in both directions. But they but only, only compete, compete in one. In one. So that makes total. So they have sense. to do double the work, in order to compete in the direction that they're going. Yeah, but if they didn't, they would probably regret it. Okay, but wow. All right, I have so much more appreciation for speed skaters now that That's they have to true. do double the work. You kind of. I bet you have to be kind of ambidextrous, right? Like. Be just as strong in both sides yeah. of your body. Huh. Otherwise, you're walking in circles. Okay, so next, um, the climate change episode. Got a lot of feedback on the climate change episode. Yeah, yeah. So this was exciting. First of all, uh, do you want to say the thing about the garlic? <laughs> yeah. All right. So we talked a lot about ways to reduce carbon footprints and you know where the CO2 sinks were. We didn't talk a whole bunch about methane reduction, and I thought it was interesting because after the episode, I did a little bit more research into it, and there are actually studies out there that are aimed at reducing methane production in cows. Obviously, that's a good goal because they're part of the problem. Right. So one of the things that they're doing and one of the things that they've found is if you feed cows a diet that includes a lot of garlic, it can reduce methane levels by about 40%. And prevent vampire attacks. <laughs> what? Okay, but they're just giving cows like here munch on some garlic? Like, I don't know what the, the quantities are. Okay. I don't know what the safety to the cow is or anything like Corey, that. I, I'm trusting you to do this kind of research okay. as well. Obviously, we're going to be concerned about the cows. Right, so I was looking at it from a purely climate standpoint okay. and the reduction there i don't know what it's gonna mean in terms of cost and 
you know, that type of, because obviously the garlic the feed would go up. I just want to make sure that the cows are okay. I, well, yeah. They must be, though, if this is a tried and true method. I don't know. I don't okay. know. It's only been the last couple years that they've been looking at this. All right. The other thing that I'm not sure of is whether or not it would change the flavor of milk <laughs> or meat from those cows. Because if I have a really garlicky milk, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna enjoy it. That's so much. a big nope for me, and yeah. I hate milk anyway, so that's extra nope. But I feel like a garlicky steak was not would not be so bad. Yeah, so if you can like get a you know pre garlicked up steak, that might be a good product to kind of market. But if you eat meat, it might be a thing that yeah. you're interested in. But no garlic in my my milk, please. Yeah, no thanks for that. Uh, okay, well, so our friend Brenda. In Vermont. Hi, Brenda. Who is actually Dr. Brenda. Dr. Brenda. She's a biologist. And she has some pet cows. And she wrote to us a comment after the climate change episode. She thought, thought you might find this interesting in light of your last episode. Cows, when graded correctly. Grazed. When grazed correctly. They're not being graded. <laughs> you get an F. Graded. No, graded <laughs> cows. I heard it as the T-E-D version. You get a B for being a bovine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, cows, when grazed correctly, for example, not how we currently do it in industrial ag agriculture, when they're grazed correctly, they can actually help sequester carbon in the soil. Rotational grazing also keeps vegetation greener for longer, which can help with cooling compared to brush hogging or full grazing, which leaves fields brown for part of the season. Food for thought, which is also hilarious. Yeah. Pun, Brenda, well done. So wait, how does that work? How can cars... Cars. cars. <laughs> wow. Not cars. Yeah, cows. cows. Sequester carbon. How can they sequester carbon? Yeah, so I think what she's referring to is if you have them in an open grazing situation where they can help fertilize the soil and help restore some of those plants and other nutrients in the soil, you can start to sequester CO2. So one of the things that commercial agriculture does, not just ranching, there's been a huge CO2 loss in the soil sink. So we talked about the ocean sink. Yeah. And one of the things that we didn't talk a lot about was the soil sink. And it's been estimated, I actually went to a talk recently about this topic um, and about agriculture and how they can help uh, reduce the climate change burden with agricultural techniques. And they said that the amount of CO2 that is in the atmosphere that is above and beyond what it was during pre-industrial revolution days is almost exactly equivalent to the soil loss. So, Oh, interesting. So like the difference in where our CO2 level should be is related to soil or like the same amount? Right. So there are obviously a lot of contributing factors, but... They were saying that the actual volume of CO2 in tons was almost directly proportional to the amount that was lost in the soil. So what does the soil do? How does it do it? How does it get into the soil? Yeah, so there's a lot of research right now going into that question. We know that the CO2 in the soil is primarily associated with minerals in the soil. So it kind of conglomerates with minerals that are already down there. Uh, and we're not so sure if it's plants that are bringing it down or microorganisms that are bringing it down uh, in terms of what the actual CO2 cycle looks like in that sink. We just know that there's a lot more CO2 down beneath the surface of the soil than we previously realized. How far down? Are we talking like an inch or like a foot or like 50 feet? 
Yeah, so most of it is more than a foot below okay. the soil, but not like crazy depths. So scientists have dug down about a foot or so down and then tested the CO2 levels. And there's CO2 down there, and we don't exactly know how it gets down there. Would yeah. groundwater have something to do with it? Like, does the would water take it? Not sure. Not sure. Okay, so we're, we don't know exactly how it works, but we do know it does work. But we do also know that we have less CO2 in the ground than there used to be. Right. How do we know that? Well, just by calculations, and it's usually related to tilling of the soil and, more importantly, erosion. So the more we clear uh, overgrowth and trees and, you know, lead to erosion and other things, and every time we till the soil to kind of kick it up uh, and mix it around, um, that's all contributing to CO2 loss in the soil. Wow, that's so interesting. Okay, so I knew deforestation was bad because you cut down trees, obviously, that eat carbon dioxide, essentially. Not eat it, but trap it. Uh, but you're saying deforestation also can release carbon in the soil itself and cause a... Wow. Wow. That's very upsetting. Like, deforestation hurts us like on a lot of different levels. Right. Yeah. What else can release that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what other... It's more just the turnover and the erosion okay. and kind of exposing those layers that mm -hmm. aren't protected by that kind of foot barrier anymore. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of research right now to come up with solutions for this, like plants that can, you know, not only nitrogen fix, but also CO2 fix. What's nitrogen fix? Like the legumes that put nitrogen back in the soil. Oh yeah, George Washington Carter. Yeah, that was that episode. Yeah. Uh, but if we could find microorganisms or plants or other techniques for putting the CO2 back in the soil, I think that would be a great potential solution to the climate change issue. Awesome. All right, so last question from the climate change episode. Someone was wondering how CO2 has been historically measured across the globe. We just talked about measuring CO2 in soil, and we talked about measuring in the ocean, but how do we know like how much CO2 has existed in previous time periods? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's also one of the cooler <laughs> questions uh, in terms of you know the technology involved in it. And basically... If you've ever heard of people taking ice core samples from the Antarctic or Arctic ice caps, that's part of what they're doing. You know, we have soil records, like as you go back in the, the period of bedrock and all that kind of stuff, you can see distinct layers. Ice is very similar to that hmm. in that you have different bands of ice. And because they are taking these big cores, they can kind of use those bands to tell which era they're in and then there are small bubbles trapped within those ice cores at different levels and then they can sample the air quality and the components of the air in those trapped air bubbles that's like time travel right that's so cool but like actual time travel like like you're actually sensing the air from a bygone era Okay. Oh, gosh. But what happens when the ice caps start melting, which is what we're seeing right now? I just saw an article recently that said scientists are concerned that if we reach a critical mass of ice melting from the ice caps, then there it's going to start releasing CO2 back into the atmosphere. Well, yeah, because historical levels of CO2 were so much higher than they are now, you have a lot of those bubbles that have much higher concentrations of CO2 than we have in our current atmosphere. So... If we get back far enough in the the ice melt, then a lot of that release will start increasing the CO2 in the air as well. 
Goodness. All right. So another reason in the long list of reasons to care strongly about climate change. Now, I don't know how much CO2 that would account for. I don't know what percentage that would be, but it's certainly at least a contributing factor. It's significant enough to have scientists warn people about it. They're talking about it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next topic. Our dear and wonderful friend, Christy has written to us and actually she sent me a Marco Polo video about this. She said that when she was in college, she did some... What is Marco Polo? It is an app that is like a video walkie-talkie. So it's like Snapchat with video. No. It's It's like like, Vine. It's like a... No, it's like a walkie-talkie, but not with words. It's like with video. And now that I know about it... Why is it called Marco Polo? Like Marco Polo, like you play in the pool. Ah, got yeah. it. Now that I Clever. know about it, I don't like texting anymore because it's just so much faster to polo someone. Oh. They are not paying us to talk about this app. We yeah. just genuinely like it. Well, I'm just curious as to what it is. Yeah, great. I clearly don't use it. Yeah, I'm going to make you use it now. Oh. <laughs> okay, so she sent me a Marco Polo. And she said that in college she did research with a marine biologist and they did research on mollusks on the feeding rate of mollusks so they had this big tank in this dark room and they had goggles and they had green lasers set up Ooh, lasers okay yeah and they would shine a laser on the mollusk and then somehow they would measure the feeding rate mm. with the laser like the the way the bio, the fast the speed at which the bivalve in the mollusk would open and close. Very nice. So I have to, so she had a question about how this actually works, like how the laser actually did this yep. job. And then my question was, why would they need to understand what, how fast mollusks feed? Why is that significant? Okay, I'll take that one first. Okay. Um, because I think this happens a lot in public perception of science in that you take a basic research approach to understanding all of life and you don't see the utility of it and i would counter with and you may not have been this negative but i think some people are yeah what's happening where they view i feel like i'm being accused well so you you said why would you be doing this in a way that made me think you may not see why it's necessary (laughs) and i didn't mean it like that well no continue okay okay i just I'm going to rant a little bit. What's the point? Okay. The point is that you never really understand where really novel things are going to come from in the science community until you've done basic research on a wide variety of things. Okay. For instance, one of the most important proteins that we have in all of scientific research is green fluorescent protein or GFP. And this is a fluorescent protein that came from a random jellyfish. Wait, fluorescent like black light status? Yeah, so it glows and you can detect it. And you can tag other proteins with it and you can follow them around. Incredibly useful for molecular biology and other research applications. All right. If that person had not studied that jellyfish and gotten that protein just to study it, we wouldn't have that protein. Interesting. So, so for research, you cast a really wide net and try to get as much data as about as many things as you can, and hopefully, some of it will turn out to be significant. Right. You said, why would we need to know about this bivalve? It's possible that we could, you know, take the components of this bivalve and you know the engineering of it and use it for commercial pumps. 
you know, they made, you know, evolution is a great way to optimize efficiency, right? Yes, so, there's a term for this. What is that? Biomimicry. There you go. Yeah. So maybe someone somewhere will be able to look at this bivalve data and say, hey, I have a really good idea for making a new novel pump that uses that kind of structure and, you know, efficiency to make a really great new pump. Okay. All right. I feel schooled, but Scienced. in a good way. Yeah. Okay. There is a wonderful podcast I might recommend all about biomimicry that I love. It's called 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter. All right. And it talks about every episode is a different animal okay. that has uh, influenced our inventions. Like, for example, studying really fast birds uh, of prey mm -hmm. and then designing like high speed trains with the aerodynamics of those birds that can dive into water like 200 miles an hour. Like, how are they how are they designed and structured? So it's like basically using the intelligence of evolution to create stuff for ourselves that is more eco-conscious and based on nature design. So it sounds like you could have answered that question also. Well, I didn't make the tie. I mean, because <laughs> we're, because, I mean, it sounds like Christie's study wasn't just talking about the design of the biovalve. It was talking about just measuring the speed and how fast it was, which I was trying to understand why that data could be significant. Well, well I then, gave you one potential. You did. <laughs> utility of that data. Yeah. And research. There Great. could be others. Great. Okay. So lasers question then. Why were yes. they using lasers? How did it work? So lasers. And why green lasers? Well, I don't think the, the color so much had a, a play here. Okay. Um, it might have just been what their sensor was built to detect. However, the actual use of a laser is very important here. And what I'm going to start with is if you're looking at water flows that are that sensitive and that small, if you put a probe inside the stream of it, it will impact the flow and you won't get accurate data. So probably like a physical little right. dingle guy that So if you drop like a wire or something in there okay. that could physically detect it, then you're going to impact the flow and you're going to get not great results from it, right? Yeah, okay. So, you know, sensitive system, lasers are great for this application because you don't actually have to physically put anything in there. Okay. Right. Now, the actual detection that they're using is the Doppler effect. And it's the same as used for radar systems and weather. Okay, wait. Doppler effect, what I'm familiar with, is the ice cream truck driving by their house. Yeah. And it sounds really happy. And then when it gets to a certain point away from you, it goes, starts sounding really creepy. Correct. Yeah, something like that. I am like sorry, that. any listeners who just had to hear that. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like yes. It, it gets farther away and then it starts changing pitch. Yeah. But it, so light does that too? Yeah. So anything that's in a wave form mm -hmm. has that effect. And what is the effect exactly? Right. So if the source of the wave is traveling toward you, all of the waves feel closer together because it's the speed of the wave plus the speed of the traveling source. So it condenses everything a little bit. Okay. And then if it's traveling away from you, it does the opposite. So the, the frequency, right, the frequency shift is what you're hearing. Yeah. Yeah. So in this case, the laser is acting in a similar fashion because it's bouncing off of something that's moving. Oh. So the frequency shift that you're getting is going to be dependent on the movement and the flow rate of that water. Okay. So let me try to use a very basic example. 
If my friend is on a skateboard, just standing still, and I th throw a rock at him, <laughs> so a small rock, it's not going to hurt him, okay? But I, th I throw a rock at him, and it'll just kind of bounce back toward me at kind of the same velocity as I threw it, essentially. It'll lose some movement. It'll lose some speed. Yeah, I don't know that this is the okay, best but, example. Okay, just stay with me for a second. Okay. Now, now my skateboarding friend is going real fast on the skateboard, and I throw the rock at him, and then it comes back. Uh, if if I if I throw the rock at him while he's coming toward me, it'll probably come back with more force than if he was standing still, right? Because he's coming toward yeah. me. Yeah. If I throw the rock while he's going away from me, it's gonna not come back nearly as hard. Right. Can we change this to a bouncy ball and a moving physical object that is hard? A car? Sure. Okay. Yeah, because it, like, it gets stuck in a sweatshirt. And then, yeah, like... there's a lot of things with the rock and the human <laughs> that I'm not liking. Don't throw rocks at anyone. We're not telling you to do that. Yeah. Okay, so you throw a bouncy ball at a stopped car. It's going to bounce back. Yeah. Okay. If you throw a... A bouncy ball to a car that's coming toward you. It's going to come back a lot faster. And you should jump out of the way. Sure. Okay, but it's going to come faster because it's got the it's got the force of the moving car coming with it. Yeah. Toward back toward you. Right. Okay, so probably it's probably going to be surprisingly fast back at your face. Yeah. If you throw a bouncy ball at a car that's going away from you, it's probably barely going to bounce back because it's going to travel with the car. <laughs> See you later. Uh, it's not going to bounce back. Is it? It will definitely bounce back. It'll bounce back, but not as hard. Theoretically, yeah. Theoretically, okay. So the laser looks at this bivalve from the mollusk going whoosh. Yeah. And how, how fast it feeds. Yeah. So it's focused on the water. Yeah. And the water's either traveling away from it or toward it. And that movement is going to shift the frequency of the light that's bouncing back and the sensor can read that as not only which direction it's going but also how fast it's going so the sensor what you would line up the data from the laser you're sending out and the sensor as it's getting information back in correct and study the difference between the two right. and this is so fast though because lasers are so fast like how do you even measure that that's amazing yeah it's based on yeah. the shift of <laughs> the frequency the frequency shift. Yeah. So you're not like measuring it in seconds. You're measuring the frequency of the light itself and the wavelength that you pick up by, from the sensor. Well, the unit of frequency is one over second. All right. So it's so small that well, you can't use a stopwatch is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. We're, we're talking about milliseconds and shorter. Yeah. Humans can't pick this up. No, this is sensor. Yeah. Okay. The sen Okay. All right, I feel like that's a pretty sufficient answer. Christy, let us know. All right. And this came to bear in real life because we went to Harry Potter World with Christy. And in Nocturne Alley, if you're a Harry Potter World No nut, spoilers, please. There, how do I explain this without giving spoilers? Okay, no spoilers. There is a thing you can do at Harry Potter World where somehow uh, it knows if you're like dancing or moving around and it makes a thing that's not real dance and move around also that's as best as i can explain without giving anything away all right all right it may or may not be in nocturne alley because i said that earlier and i need to account for that yeah anyway but we were like how does it do it and Corey goes lasers yeah 
Yeah. So basically you wanted to know how this sensor was tracking your movement yeah. to the fine point that it was. It was amazing. Yeah. And I don't know the exact technology that they're using, but one potential technology that they could be using is an infrared laser array. So infrared, not visible. Right. Because if you could see it, then you would just be like plastered with a whole bunch of red dots and that wouldn't look so that cool. That would be very upsetting, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Okay, so, so an invisible laser array, like a grid? Like yeah, a, so like a huge grid yeah. and basically it would have thousands of these little points. And depending on which points were bouncing off of you and going back to the sensor, it would know where some of your you know, arms appendages. and legs were. And then the ones that were traveling past you wouldn't be points that it would collect. So the ones that are coming back versus the ones that are, you know, going through and not coming back at the same rate, that's where you are. And then it can... But how does it know whether my arm is like a foot away from it or a foot and a half away from it? I mean, the accuracy It doesn't really care. Okay. Because it's projecting a 2D image. Right. So it just needs to mimic mimic that 2D image. Okay. Very interesting. Basically, the technology is like if you were standing in front of a wall and somebody threw a whole bunch of paint at you, yeah, and then you moved away from the wall, that silhouette of the paint <laughs> is what the lasers are doing yeah. in real time. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. But then we were asking, like, you know how that scene in Entrapment, and then they also redid it in Get Smart, that scene uh, where they have all the lasers in the room, and they blow smoke on it, and yeah. then they have to do this, like, really cool dance over the lasers, like, right. 007 style? Like, could we have done that at Harry Potter World and, like, blown some smoke and, like, seen all the lasers? Not if it's infrared. So we can never see it if it's infrared. Well, if you had a viewing card, you would be able to, but No. I carry one of those around every day. All right. Well, that's fun. It's fun to know how that works. It takes a little bit of the magic out of it, but then it puts the magic back in because science is so incredible. There you go. All right. Okay. Next, our GMO episode. Yes. Uh, My friend, our friend, she's our friend, Dr. Heidi wanted to write in and let everyone know. Dr. Heidi is a chemist. She wanted to let everyone know that GMOs are regulated by the FDA, EPA, and USDA. And depending on the use, the companies will submit application fees at various review stages. So GMOs are highly, highly regulated is what I'm understanding. Not exactly something that's just going to show up on the shelf. So I think we should have made that more clear in the episode that, you know, I, I don't think we emphasized enough that. And we're not saying all GMOs are safe or a good idea by any means. Like we talked about a lot in the episode, uh, it's the application that's very important. But but our our government organizations do take a lot of steps to try to make it as safe as we possibly can. Yep, it's not just the wild west of science. Yeah. All right. Uh, finally, mosquitoes. Our mosquito episode called "Nasty Little Buggers." The most recent one. Yeah, I still really don't like talking about them and wish they were gone. But okay, anyway, go listen to the episode if you haven't listened to it. But uh, one question that I forgot to ask you was this. What happens to mosquitoes during cold months? Like right now we're in December. Where'd they all go? Yeah, Do so they die? no. Dang. They don't all die. Okay, yeah. They actually hibernate. Like bears? 
well, I don't know exactly what the biology is of I've, the mosquitoes, but they I find... I figured they didn't fly south for the winter because they're very small. Correct. That would yeah. be a long journey for something that size. And a lot of mosquitoes in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so they hibernate somehow. They do. They find protected areas and hibernate. There's also, uh, I think, a belief that their eggs can survive over the winter as well. It must then, be, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have any more mosquitoes. Well, unless the ones that are hibernating mate and then We're alive. lay eggs in the spring. But I think it's a combination of adult mosquitoes hibernating and eggs persisting throughout the winter somehow. And yeah. I don't know exactly how that works, but they do. Another thing I was wondering is because mosquitoes aren't pretty sensitive to weather temperatures, I was wondering if climate change and global rising temperatures could actually make mosquito populations grow. I don't think that's something we talked explicitly about, but is that a danger that we should be concerned about? Well, the frost is what like makes them like the ones that are exposed during the frost, they all die. It's yeah. only the protected ones that survive until the spring. But if some areas like maybe see light frost, that would, would kill off mosquitoes or yeah, they might be able to persist year round instead of yeah. die off. Yeah. Oh, that would be, Which awful. would be annoying and dangerous. Yeah. And potentially dangerous. I want to reemphasize uh, the importance of donating for mosquito nets. If you want to make a contribution, you know, this is the holiday season when we're recording this. Um, the UN has an awesome initiative right now. It's called nothingbutnets.net, which I thought was a very clever use of a domain name extension. You never see .net, but in this case, it works so well. Nothingbutnets.net, and they're trying to get a certain number of mosquito nets donated globally by the end of the year. So if you can contribute, go to that website and do it because it's awesome. It's an awesome initiative. Uh, and then you wanted to say something about the malaria vaccine, right? Yeah, so I felt that I was overly dismissive of the malaria vaccine. And it's not that there's not a malaria vaccine in existence. It's just that the current options for vaccination are not very good and are not currently recommended for the key demographics by the World Health Organization. Okay. So, so that's, But that's something that could have potential, right? Right. So right now, the number one vaccine on the market was approved in 2015, I believe. And it's a four-shot series, so three shots and then a booster shot. Oh, wow. And it is only effective in about 20 to maybe 50% of cases. Oof. So yeah. in the early trials, it was down in the 15 to 30% range. That's not great for that many needles. Yeah. The nice thing is that the overall cost of the entire treatment is only about twenty dollars. Okay, that's so that cool. that's encouraging. That's very encouraging. Good job, scientists. But there's a large scale trial that is projected to start in the next few months, sometime in 2020, on a much more promising vaccine that, in early research studies, has protected almost a hundred percent of healthy patients. That's awesome. Right. How exciting. So previous vaccines, and we've talked about vaccines a little bit in the flu episode, but previous vaccines were only using portions of the spore-ish things. So they're called sporozoites. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's like the spore equivalent to a bacteria, but it's a plasmodium as we discussed. And the partial proteins don't elicit a very big immune response, so you don't get a lot of protection, which is why you need to have three shots and a booster and all that. Now, the new vaccine uses the entire spore, 
And when you do that, you get a much higher immune response, which is why they're seeing much better efficacy rates. That's great. So, yeah, that's you know, hopefully exciting. that works out really well and we'll have a much more bona fide vaccine on the market. I could save thousands of lives. Yeah, that's exciting. And and to make it affordable, too, is, is very exciting. So remember the, the mosquito episode? I was really trying hard to say something nice about mosquitoes. Yeah. Okay, I found something. Okay. Okay. So mosquito, what are they called? Snouts? They're little... Proboscises? <laughs> They're from... <laughs> a mosquito snout uh, is really effective at uh, getting into the skin without us feeling it because of the mechanics of it. And so, hey, that episode, that podcast I mentioned earlier, the 30 animals that made us smarter, did an episode on mosquito proboscis and how they're doing promising research right now on needles that don't hurt people. There you go. In and out. So wouldn't it be cool if in the future we give people malaria vaccines with needles designed on the mechanics of mosquito proboscises to make it painless? That'd be great. How amazing would that be? So there you go, especially for someone who doesn't like needles, especially for me. Very excited about that idea. But solving science with science. There you go. Science is amazing. No, no, go up at the end. (laughs) There it is. Hooray. Well, thanks for joining us on this listener episode. Uh, We take listener comments and feedback very seriously. We love hearing from you guys. And we dedicated this entire episode just to listener stuff. So if you have questions or comments, please get in touch with us. And we'll put you in the next listener extravaganza. Um, We're also planning out our future episodes right now. So if you have ideas or something that it's just been a burning question for you in your life and you want to see an episode about it, please let us know because we want to take your ideas into consideration. So you can email us at soymarriedascientist at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us at our website, soymarriedascientist.com or you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram or I have to admit, guys, we have a Twitter set up, but we don't really know how to use it. We have had zero tweets. We have had none tweets. We might have had one or two. I need to get on that. I need to learn Twitter. I don't know. I don't feel cool enough for Twitter, to be honest. My brain can't handle it. I can't even Marco Polo, so I'm not the Twitter guy. That's for sure. Marco Polo is easy compared to Twitter. I know Twitter is supposed to be easy, but to me... I thought it was like a hundred and something characters. They changed it to more than that, but I I can't keep up with this. Right. I don't know. So can someone teach us how to use Twitter? Because we're struggling. We need a Twitter coach. We need a tweeter. A tweeter? I think that's what they call him. I don't know. Professional tweeter. Maybe hey, Benny can be our Twitter guy. Benny, do you want to be our tweeter? Benny and the Jits. All right, we should wrap this up. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Music by Lemonfest. Logo and marketing by Cambridge Creative Group. Edited and produced by Corey and Mel. See you next time. Music.